Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. All right, so we're, we're really lucky today to be uh, talking with my law school classmate, Peter Grenier, out of Washington, D.C., uh, Maryland, Virginia, and about 26 other states. This guy is, I keep, whenever I read about his biography, I'm amazed by it because uh, he's done more in his career uh, throughout the 50 states than any other lawyer I know. Uh, but he's also unbelievably successful. I mean, he's got the largest verdict against, I think, the District of Columbia ever. Uh, he's got numerous eight-figure verdicts and um, just just a guy that takes really, really hard cases or big new, newsworthy cases but I'm really looking forward to it. So, hey, Peter, thanks for jumping on. Oh, my pleasure, Joe. It's, it's, it's a pleasure professionally and personally to see you and be with you today. So, um, you know, we're, right now uh, we're doing this interview and it's the middle of this, this really unfortunate thing to happen to our country, this, this virus. And um, a lot of us are, you know, either working remotely and I, I know that, uh, that that's happening with you. So tell me about what's going on with your firm right now. Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, in about the second week of March, when they started issuing the shelter-in-place orders, Governor Hogan in Maryland, where we are, uh, issued a shelter-in-place order. Uh, we were kind of a little bit ahead of the curve, I'm proud to say, because technologically, we had all eight people in our firm already very well equipped through our IT people to uh, virtually remote in. Uh, they had a good, we had a good infrastructure of IT. So when we officially I don't want to say closed our offices, but when we decided to work uh, remotely, we already had the infrastructure in there and anyone in our office that didn't have enough hardware, such as laptops, printers, computers, et cetera, we had them all shipped to them and it's business as usual. We have, I'm so pleased to say our, our firm, we don't look at as coworkers, we are a family and everyone we welcome into our family when they join us, everyone has an equal say in whether we uh, hire that person and make an offer. So we really get, get along. We're so simpatico in so many ways. And uh, so we have Zoom meetings every few days and every Friday at five, we have a virtual happy hour. Uh, I usually will do some trivia questions and those happy hours are known to go for four or five hours on a Friday <laughs> evening. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. And we also have a little practice in our office. We have a small gong in our conference room. And whenever we settle a case, we gather around and whoever settled the case hits the gong. And so now we have a virtual gong and it's great. We have Microsoft team instant message. And so someone will send around an, uh, an anime or a gift, whatever you want to call it, of, of a gong being hit. And it's, uh, it's, it's really nice. We all, no one works for each other. We all work with each other and we're weathering through it. I mean, business has been great. We've had such a buildup of cases, sort of, I don't want to say in a backlog, but we have so many cases that we are now able to turn to. I was yeah. supposed to start 
a two-week jury trial in a catastrophic injury case representing a Maryland state trooper who was horrifically injured. And I was supposed to start that trial on March 16th. And on March 13th, that Friday, we learned that our trial had been canceled or postponed, and it was just reset for late July. So as plaintiff's lawyers, and I think I, I, I liaise with a lot of plaintiff's lawyers in my area, locally and nationally, and so we talk about how we're handling and how we're handling virtual meetings, et cetera, et cetera. We do have one legal assistant who's willing to go into the office every few days physically to gather settlement checks, to scan the mail, et cetera. We keep a, a very good log of who goes in and when. Uh, so we're taking the quarantine thing very, very, very seriously. But um, I, I have to say, from a virtual perspective, it's really been business as usual. So uh, business as usual for you is absolutely crazy because... Um, so although you and I graduated um, from Notre Dame Law School together, uh, we, we went to different parts of the country, and I've been following your career, and it's pretty amazing. But before we get into that, can, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your upbringing? Where'd you grow up? Tell us about your parents. Tell us about your family. Sure, absolutely. I'm the youngest of three, uh, and I grew up, I was, I was born in uh, Washington, D.C., and I grew up in a suburb in Maryland. My father, uh, I'm, the I'm a third generation uh, attorney, but uh, you could not have more markedly different practice areas. My, my parents are both from New York and my father grew up in, uh, in uh, the Bronx and then they moved to Manhattan and his father was an estate planning lawyer. Uh, my father was a uh, 59 graduate of Harvard Law School and so he had, he had Ruth Bader Ginsburg, he had Ralph Nader, he had a lot of famous people uh, in his class with him. And uh, he was an energy regulatory lawyer at uh, a very large law firm uh, in Washington, D.C. And I guess I sort of fell not too far from the tree as far as going into law, but uh, very far from the tree as far as the practice area. I, uh, I went to Georgetown Prep, uh, a Jesuit high school, and uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, was two years behind me. Uh, uh, Gorsuch was a few more years behind me than that. And... Um, and then Notre Dame undergrad, Notre Dame law school. So Catholic, 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 Catholic. <laughs> and, uh, and then I went back to DC and I, I clerked for a judge, which I would recommend anyone starting their career to do. Uh, it maxed out my credit cards, but it was the best experience ever. Uh, and then I started with a, a large, about a hundred lawyer law firm where I was for nine years. And about five years into that, uh, doing commercial litigation at a large firm, one day, a real estate tax partner walked into my office and said, Peter, I love the way you handle the litigation for my clients. My brother was punched by a garbage man. He hit his head in a dispute over garbage. He hit his head on the pavement, and I'd love for you to try to get ten dollars or $20,000 for him. I don't know what made him think that I would know anything about personal injury law, but he said, come on, figure it out. So I started calling around, literally calling around to personal injury lawyers I didn't even know. And they said, okay, you need a forensic neuropsychologist. I said, great, what is that? Do you know one? And they said, you need an economist. Great, what is that? Do you know one? And I, I bumbled my way through and ended up going to trial against Waste Management, the largest garbage company on earth uh, in the early to mid 1990s. And, uh, with $7,000 in medical expenses, I got a $1.5 million verdict against waste management. And it was the largest verdict in Montgomery County, Maryland, the county where I grew up that year. So I started getting calls from other lawyers saying, 
who are you? We don't know who you are. And I said, I don't do that stuff. I, I'm a commercial litigator. The next yeah. thing you know, I'm getting a call about a wrongful death medical malpractice case against Johns Hopkins. I hit for about $700,000 on that one. And then fast forward, and, uh, and I had the case that, that yielded uh, an almost $100 million verdict against the uh, District of Columbia. And the previous record was uh, 24 million. And that to, to this day still stands as the largest verdict against DC. That kind of propelled me into the national spotlight. And that led to my getting the Columbine High School shootings case. And uh, it was kind of funny. I do have to tell you a funny quick story is um, Brendan Sullivan, who I'm sure you know is the chair of uh, Williams and Connolly, one of the most famous lawyers uh, in the country. And I brought Brendan and his team in to, uh, to handle the appeal in that $100 million verdict. And when I told Brendan that that was my first civil rights case, he kind of smiled and he said, I can't wait to see your second one. <laughs> story. And from so, there, it's just it's been surreal. It really has. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, we, we've both been practicing uh, since the late 80s and um, it, it's gone fast, hasn't it? Oh, my God. It's, it's flown by. Well, you look exactly the same, I have to say. You haven't aged a bit. <laughs> Uh, no, I say the same way. I, I, I'm like, um, it, it seems like just yesterday that we, that we were we were hanging out in that little town, South Bend, and with nothing to do in that place, but the, some really great professors. Um, but the the thing that I that I look back on is you know the people that we graduated with and um, the, the, the practice you've had, how do you get to 26 different states for your cases? I, I don't understand how you have that type of draw. Joe, it is the oddest thing. And, and I'm, uh, let me just say, I'm, I'm so humbled. I'm really humbled by every client from anywhere in the country uh, that calls on me or any lawyer that calls on me. In many instances, to answer your question pretty pointedly, uh, it, it will be a, an attorney who maybe has a case like one that I've had, and so they, they've read about it, and then they track me down. Uh, it's also been uh, as simple as my financial planner is from Florida, and he knows someone who needs a lawyer in Florida. Now, I don't know why they wouldn't just get someone in Florida, but it's kind of just fed on itself. And uh, um, I, I have to say, and I'm, I'm all for marketing, I think marketing is great, but the way we've done it is just on a Thursday night when everyone else is going to a happy hour at six, I'm in the office till 2 a.m. Uh, I missed, and I, I regret this, I regret this greatly, but I missed a lot of holidays in those early years, especially the first 10, 12, 15 years. Uh, my family made a lot of sacrifices, um, but the law has been my mistress, it really has. And I really believe that, that the way you get attention is by your results. Um, I think a lot of people have a misconception that what you and I do for a living, because we watch law shows where they get to trial within about 23 minutes of the uh, one hour episode, that that's what it's like. And it's not, as you well know, it's nose to the grindstone, work, work, work. Um, probably one of the most flattering things uh, I had happen to me was just last year. In early 2000, there was a catastrophic bicycle uh, injury that occurred to a world champion triathlete. I don't know if it's appropriate necessarily to say her name, but, uh, and her husband was that forensic economist that was with me in my very first case in the 1990s. And I've used hmm. him ever since then. And he, he and his wife were down in Florida in February of 2019. 
and they were they were bicycling together early one morning and a woman ran a, uh, a, a yield sign into a roundabout a circle and he watched his wife be catastrophically brain injured and other otherwise orthopedically <sighs> injured and he called me from florida while she was still in a coma and and <clears throat> said you you are going to be our lawyer and you know it's it's really i think it's just a matter of really thinking outside the box you know, when everyone's telling me, no, it can't be done, I said, no, 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 there's always an answer. And I tell everyone in my office, we have a repeating, two repeating mantras. One, optimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy of success. And don't ever come into my office and tell me something bad about a case unless your very next sentence is a suggested solution to that problem. I like that. You know, the, I've, I've worked with you in the past, Peter, and I'll tell you, there is no better prepared lawyer than Peter Grenier. Let me repeat that. There is no better prepared lawyer than Peter Grenier. And the reason why I'm saying that is because you know you talked about the the television shows, and they don't they don't show the unbelievable preparation because you know the the one thing about being a trial lawyer is that if you're going to be the one trying the case, you must know every specific small detail, comma, period you know, capitalized letter, et cetera, in that case, because you have to develop a trust with the jury that you're the one that is gonna bring them the truth so they can figure it out. And that's the one thing that, that I've, you know, I've worked, I worked with uh, Peter before on cases and I'm asking him all these esoteric questions about the case and he's always got an answer. And I'm like, how do you, how do you know that? He goes, well, I've reviewed the file. I've reviewed the file. And, and is it something that you do, I mean, I understand you're not a volume firm. You basically take the cases where you think you can come through. That's what we do. Uh, and so tell the folks, you know, what kind of criteria you have for accepting a case. Sure, absolutely. We have a several step criteria. <clears throat> First, the, the level or severity of injuries. And obviously, if it's a death, it's by definition catastrophic and severe. So the threshold inquiry for us is, and I hate to say it because we do, we do, we do give back. I do do a lot of pro bono work for inmates and prisoners and such on their rights. But as a business, we have to look at a case through economic lens, uh, through an economic lens. And so if it's a case where someone calls us and says, for example, I was love tapped at three miles an hour and my neck hurts, or uh, the police put the cuffs on a little too tightly and they wouldn't loosen them when I asked them, generally speaking, we'll politely decline. Uh, we always joke that, you know, we kiss a lot of frogs. We look at a lot of cases before we take a case. Yeah. And if it passes that threshold of severity of, of injury or, or damage or death, uh, then the next inquiry is, okay, taking kind of a 30,000 foot view, uh, has the statute of limitations run? In other words, the deadline that by which you have to bring right. your, your claim. Because it which is be always a sad one, isn't it? That's a oh. sad call. When they, oh, I, is it awful they should call somebody right away? Let me, let me tell you, may I digress just for 20 seconds? Do it, man. Wait, this, is, this is a free-flowing conversation, Peter. You interrupt me, and I'll interrupt you, and I think our, our listeners will like it. Sure, sure. So here, here's probably one that hit me the hardest. Uh, a couple came to me, a lovely, lovely couple in their early 30s from Virginia. Virginia has a very strict two-year statute of limitations for personal injury and medical malpractice. This man had clearly suffered 
severe medical negligence. His vertebral artery was severed by a chiropractor who didn't even have consent to do what he did in the manipulation and caused him a stroke and paralysis. Uh, not full body paralysis, but pretty severe paralysis. They came to me about six months after the statute ran. And this is what's just gonna kill you to hear, Joe. Do you know why they, when I asked them why they delayed, do you know, it almost brings tears to my eye, eyes. The reason they delayed coming to find, a, going to find a lawyer for the husband is because their six-year-old son had been hit by a truck and was convalescing and recovering for over two years. And it happened shortly after this act of medical negligence. And they were myopically and completely understandably focused on getting their son better. And oh, boy finally, finally recovered, they said, okay, now we're going to look at my case. And I had to, and it just almost brings tears to my eyes. I had to tell them that, I, I, I had to tell them that bad news. And uh, uh, that just, that just killed me. That just killed me. Yeah. So tell me some of the, um, some, tell me some of the cases that, that, that really, um, you know, we, we, uh, as lawyers, there's some cases just cling to us as far as meaning goes, like the ones that just made a big difference and, and you felt like, hey, you know what? I, I've changed a policy. I've, I've helped change a law. I've made it so that, that it's easier for people to seek justice. What's, is there some, anything like that you have in your uh, background? Absolutely. There are a few, if I may. Uh, Go ahead. In no particular order of, of importance, but uh, all over the news a few years ago <clears throat> was a, a horrific story about one of those parents who wanted to be the cool dad to the high school students, so he would allow underage drinking in his house. And there were two uh, young men, 18 years old, uh, Alex Merck and Calvin Lee, who went with their friend Sam Ellis to this, uh, this man's house because he was a cool dad that allowed underage drinking. And they went there, they drank, and they left. Sam Ellis was, was driving. He drove at about 100 miles an hour around a curve, went through a fence, the car went airborne, flipped over, hit a tree. You wouldn't even recognize it as a car. And Alex Merck and Calvin Lee were killed. And at that time, on the law books in Maryland, was a very, very tepid, lukewarm statute that said if a parent knowingly allows the consumption of underage alcohol, other than if it's his own relative or for religious purposes with a relative that's underage, uh, that the most he could face criminally was a $2,500 fine. That's it. And they charged him. He pled guilty and paid $2,500 for each of those teenagers' deaths, paid $5,000. And we went to bat with David and Pamela Merck. I represented the Merck family whose son Alex was killed. And I'm so, so happy to tell you that we were able to get the Maryland General Assembly to pass what's called Calvin and Alex's law. And now there is teeth. Now a parent in that same situation, if convicted, can face actual imprisonment which is, I think, a wonderful deterrent. Um, that has really, really stuck with me. Columbine also has stuck with me. We all know what happened on April 20th of 1999. Um, but in Columbine, in the wake of Columbine, that really markedly changed how hostage response teams or um, uh, uh, high-risk uh, SWAT teams would respond to unfolding, uh, unfolding uh, events such as Columbine, which we've seen all too many of. And I remember in Columbine that they were treating this 
as a hostage situation instead of a high-risk situation. Those are the phrases that the law enforcement in Colorado had in their actual manual. So instead of going in, they were just staying outside as Klebold and Harris just ruthlessly murdered lots of people. And so that stuck with me. And what one SWAT expert once told me when I said, my God, it's just amazing what you guys do. And he said, Peter, he said, we don't rise to the occasion. We fall back on our training. And that's always just stuck with me. And I would say, um, and, and so they changed the way they address these situations. Uh, Virginia Tech massacre, April 16th, 2007. I'll never, I, I never forget. I have a little, I don't, I don't have an eidetic memory, but a little bit of a photographic memory. And so I remember dates of almost every wrongful death case I think I've ever had. And I, I, I it's weird. I can't get these numbers out of my head sometimes, but uh, I remember in the wake of uh, Virginia Tech, when they used the blast emails and they misrepresented that it was an active shooter on campus, uh, in the wake of that, and I think this was right in your hometown, or this was right near you, Northern Illinois University uh, had a situation shortly after Virginia Tech, and they immediately did a blast uh, email to everyone to shelter in place, and it ended up saving lives. Um, I remember that so clearly. So what I tell everyone is, you know, you're never going to make a government go out of business by hitting them even for $100 million, $200 million. You're not going to make them go out of business. But if you hit them hard enough, or a police department, or a corporation, you hit them hard enough in their wallet, you know what? It's going to be cheaper for them to retrain. I do a lot of police misconduct cases, death in custody cases, and it's a heck of a lot cheaper. If you want to look at the crass base reality, if we can hit them hard enough where it hurts, then at least they'll find that from a business perspective, it's cheaper to change the way they do things. Another case that, that really sticks with me, uh, and this was this happened probably about 10 years ago, was a, uh, a woman in San Francisco, California. Her husband was a kind of a big time investment banker, a mortgage banker type. And they were on a business trip with their two young children who were eight and 10 years old at the time. And they were on a business trip to Washington and a Metro bus ran through several red lights and they were in a minivan taxi and they were crushed into a street light pole and they watched for 45 minutes while their dad died. The mom's lung was collapsed because she had broken ribs. She couldn't help daddy. The kids were trapped. They weren't that badly injured, but they're screaming for mom to help daddy. And it took them about 40 minutes to extricate them. And what really hit me hard about that, Joe, was that her kids were exactly the same age and gender of my kids at that time. And I remember flying out to San Francisco and meeting with, with the mother. And there was another attorney she had, she had interviewed in DC. I won't name him, but pretty big time plaintiff's attorney in DC. And he was hounding her for the case, which I, I would never do. I just meet with them, impart my wisdom, and, and hopefully they'll choose me. And I learned later on that she, that other lawyer kept hounding her. And he was saying things like, I can get you more money than Peter. I'm better than Peter. And she finally said to him, I heard this through a third person, her estate lawyer, who she never would have told me this. But she said to him, you know what? She said, he may not get as much money, but you know, my kids bonded with him and my kids liked him. They really that's, yeah, that's, that's, it's all about the people, you know, it's, and what we do and, and getting that, that bond. But, you know, one of the th what things I followed in your uh, career, that I thought was, uh, again, you know, kind of on the, the drinking theme was the work that you've done um, with um, fraternities, mm -hmm. uh, some of the fraternity litigation. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about the fraternity litigation you've worked on? 
absolutely. It's, it's, it's so tragic to think of some of the stories of, uh, as we know, you know, every August kids go off, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed to college and they start getting recruited to join fraternities or sororities. And they go through something which we all know the word hazing. And um, oftentimes it's accompanied by a lot of drinking and they, they reveal the family drink on reveal night. And, and they make the, the big brother gives the little brother a bottle of Crown Royal and he's peer pressured or forced to, to chug a bottle of Crown Royal where he's getting it into a system before the alcohol poisoning kicks in. And oftentimes they will just, the person passes out, they put him uh, with a blanket on top of him uh, on a couch and the next day he's found dead from alcohol poisoning. I'm talking a 0.40, a 0.43 blood alcohol. Just to put that in perspective for your viewers, 0.08 is the legal limit in most states. So we're talking about five plus times the, the legal uh, level of alcohol. And fortunately, uh, in, in a lot of states where they may have what are called contributory negligence or assumption of the risk defenses, which could negate or greatly offset the holding of fraternities, national or local level chapters, uh, legally responsible, they've passed a lot of statutes, hazing statutes, which I'm very pleased to see, that actually take the responsibility and put it solely or squarely on the shoulders of the fraternity brothers, of the fraternity chapters, and of the nationals as well, the national chapters of the fraternities. And, um, you know, it's, I'm not going to lie, it's still a big problem out there. Um, when I, when I see some of the, just the, 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 the most idiotic of hazing things. For example, a group of drunk fraternity brothers decide that they should have a pledge, lie on his back with a golf tee in his mouth, with a, a golf ball, and then have the big brothers take a driver, a big one wood driver, and take a tee shot from that tee. What do you think happens? Or making brothers or pledges with asthma swim out into the middle of a lake in the middle of January. What do you think happens? Uh, it's it's mind-boggling, mind-boggling to me uh, that this happens. But you know, you lose your inhibition when you start drinking alcohol, and we know that the frontal cortex is deemed by science not to be fully developed until about the age of 23, hence the age of 21 drinking laws. Um, and you know, we we have had success in having chapters kicked off of certain campuses. Uh, and so, you know, I always like to say there's no silver lining for the family that's lost their loved one. And Joe, I can't tell you how many times I've represented families where their loved one is about to embark upon a college career. Um, uh, also, uh, I, I'm not trying to change subjects, but we've handled a number of, of suicide cases as well, not just suicide in custody, but one that really sticks with me is a, is a young man probably would have, and I'm not exaggerating, would have changed the face of, of, of some area of science, maybe mechanical engineering. He was an absolute genius. He was in his freshman year at Yale University, majoring in mechanical engineering. And he had joined uh, what's called the drop team. Uh, this is a team of selected students who would come up with a mechanical engineering type experiment they would submit to NASA to be conducted in a, uh, uh, an environment of weightlessness. You know, they have those 747s they take up right. and they drop them and they, they create uh, temporary weightlessness. So he was fortunate enough to be, get on the team as a freshman and he became overwhelmed. He wasn't sleeping. And so he did the right thing. He went to Yale Mental Health. He sought help and his assigned psychologist 
Uh, and he told the psychologist he had formulated a plan as to how he would kill himself. He had decided how he would dispose of his assets, which are two major red flags for uh, a psychologist to be alerted to the real, very real prospect of suicide. And this psychologist went out on medical leave for bilateral hip replacement, and this poor student fell through the cracks. They forgot to reassign him to someone else, and he, uh, uh, he didn't show up for his appointments, and they found him one morning dead, and I won't discuss how, but they found him dead in the physics lab with a, uh, a note that said, sorry for being so shitty. And oh, then, God. And, and, and we sued Yale uh, in New Haven Superior Court and got a very, I think it's confidential, but a very, very, very successful outcome there. Uh, and the parents took the money and put it into a foundation. Uh, as did many of our Virginia Tech, we helped create the Virginia Tech uh, Victims Foundation, the VTVF, with the money that was gotten that we got in the uh, Virginia Tech massacre uh, cases. So, you know, there's, there's, I hate to say silver lining, there's nothing good about any of this, but as so many parents on countless occasions have told me, if we can put the money that you've gotten for us to education or to, to uh, helping with safety on campus, you know, we do a lot of sexual assault cases, then maybe in, in a very small respect, our loved one didn't die totally in vain. So uh, I want to shift gears because there, there's a lot of folks that, that watch us and they, they think, well, how, how, does, how does your firm do this? So are, is there any sort of like habits that you have personally uh, that you can share that, that you live by that help you to serve your clients? Well, as I said earlier, um, you know, optimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy of success. And I, I came up with that phrase probably 20 years ago, and I really, really believe it. I believe that in every case we undertake, we will find the truth and we will find the facts. And so our mantra is, uh, I, I hate to use the phrase scorched earth because that sounds almost like a, um, I mean, it sounds almost, it, it's almost kind of, a critical comment. It's not, it's not necessarily a flattering comment, but we are scorched earth. And what do I mean by that? Um, we, we will send out 30 or 40 Freedom of Information Act requests in a case. We will contact every news outlet and instruct them first thing to hold on to all their raw footage. We did that in Columbine, for example. So this goes back, you know, 20, 21 years. Uh, so we take a, a, a Basically, we don't skimp on any aspect of the case because the facts are there. I'll give you a perfect example. I had a police shooting case uh, probably 10 years ago where a, uh, a young man was alleged to be coming downstairs facing an apartment, door, apartment building entrance door. The police were responding and, uh, to a loud, loud party complaint. And they claimed that when they walked in the door, he was walking down the stairs towards them with a gun pointed at them. So they shot him. So we start out, of course, by gathering all the information, everything. We even got the internal affairs investigative reports. Turns out that internal affairs cleared these cops because they read the, uh, the diagram of the anatomy on the autopsy report backwards. And they said that he, he was shot in the front and he was actually shot in the back. So he would have been having to point a gun over his shoulder. 
but more than that, in pouring through thousands and thousands of pages. And I did fault, I will be honest with you, I did fault my associate for not noticing this. You know what, the, they, they had a gun that they said he had on his person and that he pointed at them. In going through the, and I don't know how it came to me, but going through these thousands of pages of documents, there was one thing that I didn't see. I didn't see any fingerprint tests on the gun. And so it occurred to me, my God, the guy wasn't wearing gloves. Wouldn't that like be one of their main pieces of evidence? Because I had suspicions they planted the gun. And after chastising my associate for not thinking of this, we pressed and pressed and pressed. This was the DC Metropolitan Police Department. We pressed them for that. And lo and behold, out of the thousands of pages, they somehow checked their other pocket and found the fingerprint test results that were negative. His fingerprints were nowhere on the gun that he said they were pointing. Mm. pointing. And as soon as we discovered that, they immediately settled the case. So I guess what I do sometimes, and maybe people will think I'm not working, I will sit in my office and just with my eyes closed and think. If I'm getting ready for a trial, I will think, what does the jury want me to ask? What do I, what evidence do I want to see or figure out or know about that can further my case? Or what other possible areas or physical locations might there be evidence? So for example, I've had numerous cases where the police miss at a scene. They'll miss that there was a security camera up on a building facing down. Or they will miss that there was a security camera way back in an elevator lobby that was pointing out through the glass doors of the office building and may have caught the incident. We had that in a pedestrian case that, that made our case. We just got a video from the outside of a hotel that had a front row view, front row of front row view of our bicyclist client being hit by a cab driver. And our client who was in a coma after the incident couldn't defend himself. And he, our client was charged with improper bicycling in the lane. And we got, when we got that, we, they, they threw out the charge against him and we got the policy limits from the cab driver because we, there's no shortcut. I tell everyone in my office, there's no shortcut. I was not born knowing the rules and the local rules of a court that I'm in. I was not born knowing the regulations or the statutes. I say, you know, I, when, when they come to me, it's sort of like, you know, I can give you a fish or I can teach you to fish. And when someone comes into my office and says, what statute is that? What statute? I say, why don't you tell me what that statute is? Because I'm pretty sure I was not born knowing that. And so it's, it's a long road, I think, to, to achieve what, what you more than I have achieved. But it's really a matter of not taking shortcuts. And it's a matter of, and I tell everyone, I tell every client this too because a lot of clients will come to me with a case that's worth say $200,000 or $100,000 or $300,000. And they'll say to me, look, I know you only take these really, really big cases, which is not true. We take, you know, if, if there's clear liability, we may take a smaller case. But they say, you know, I, 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 I don't know why you would be interested in my case. And I look at them and I say, look, I want your case and promise me this, if ever, if ever, you have the impression or the feeling that your case is not my most important case, promise me that you'll fire us. Promise me that. Because every client is equal. Every case is just as important. And I tell the clients as well, I don't know how to do a case more efficiently. I don't know how to do it more economically. I only know one way to do a case. 
So if you give me a $3 million case, a $20 million case, or a $200,000 case, I don't know how to do them differently. I do them all the same. And I will tell you this, um, in my experience, some of my biggest cases have actually been referred by clients who I've declined. And let me say that again. I've gotten some of my biggest cases from people whose cases I've declined because we went to the effort of fully evaluating. I remember I spent $14,000 on a former Michelin uh, tire engineer to look at a tire blowout case uh, for the mother and father-in-law of a man living in Delaware who's originally from Texas. We had that tire tested, blah, blah, blah. We had every, everyone in the world involved from Goodyear, et cetera, et cetera. It turned out to not be a case. It turns out that the motorcycle owner, unfortunately, who suffered the blowout and horrific brain, dam brain injuries, uh, had merely installed the tire incorrectly. Fast forward four months, that son-in-law calls me frantically from Delaware and says, Peter, hi, it's Jeff. Um, my mom was in a head-on collision down outside of Dallas. And um, this harkens back to your question of getting cases in other states. And he said, um, it was about 120 mile an hour combined head-on collision speed. Construction company driver truck dropped his, uh, dropped his cell phone and swerved across the median and hit my, my mom head-on. Oh. And so I flew down, it was a Saturday he called me. I flew down the next morning to Dallas. She was still in the hospital, had 26 uh, fractures, so many surgeries, it's not even funny. And I'll tell you a, a great story, if I may, about that case. Good. And so I uh, ended up representing the family. Um, we got a $6 million settlement uh, about seven or eight months after, after uh, the incident and where we, when we had our life care plan. And um, I'll never forget, I went to that mediation and the other side told me later on that they brought $2.5 million to the mediation and we settled for $6 million. And something I did, which I'll share with you and, and any of your lawyer viewers and you, Joe, um, again, sitting and thinking and always trying to think outside the box, which I tell everyone in our office, I will be angry at you if you, never, if you don't come to me with any ideas, no matter how crazy they are. So I, I was sitting thinking about that case and I said, wow, you know, this poor woman's been through about 25 or 30 CAT scans. She's been through countless x-rays, MRIs, there's gotta be some radiation danger here. So actually, believe it or not, there's a National Council on Radiation Measures and there are standards for the maximum number of, of I think they're called millirems or rems that you, one should be exposed to in a given year, whether it be you know, from x-rays, et cetera. Well, I did some research and I calculated the amount of radiation she had been exposed to. And it turns out that she was exposed to about the equivalent of smoking. He's sitting down about smoking about a hundred packs of cigarettes a day for three years. Oh my goodness. Her chance of, her chance of getting cancer was I think 31,000 times that of a normal person. I put all that in our mediation statement. And when they saw that later on, the defense lawyer said, wow, we've never, we've never seen that argument. And I said, well, I don't, I, I just kind of was looking at her medical records and I thought of this and did, did the digging and did the research. And they called back to Chicago to their headquarters and they added another uh, three and a half million dollars and settled for six million. So it's really, I think, a question of thinking outside the box. And that's what I love about what we do as plaintiff's lawyers. We start with a blank slate. No one gives us an outline mm -hmm. of what we're supposed to do. We design the landscape. 
what maybe I want an accident reconstructionist. Maybe I want a forensic pathologist on pre-death conscious pain and suffering. Maybe I want a grief counselor. In our death cases, we always get a grief counselor to opine on, on counseling needs for family members. And a lot of people I think also ignore, tend to ignore the psychological aspects of our clients' severe catastrophic injuries. Of course we know they're upset, they're sad, they're depressed. But what about getting an actual clinician to diagnose them on the, under the DSM-5, which is the current diagnostic and statistical <laughs> manual that psychologists and psychiatrists use, get a diagnosis and get a formal expert opinion. Sure, it's gonna cost a lot of money, but it's so worth it and it really does enhance the economic value of the case overall, it really does. And oftentimes it leads to the client going and seeking, getting the, the treatment that they need from a psychological standpoint. You know, I, I, I often tell juries, you know, when I'm in front of them, I say, you know, listen, this, this case isn't about how much medical bills or how much lost wages somebody has. I mean, think about it. Uh, they don't get any of the medical bill money. They get none of it. It all goes back to the lien holders, and they don't. None of us really, you know, the folks that we represent. None of them really live to to work all the time. They they want they want the time with their family. They want the, the weekends. They want the the time to run or bike or hike or do all these different things or crochet. You know, whatever it is. And I, you know, I always tell the jurors this is about the non-economic things. And what you're bringing up is some great points that. You know, a lot of um, a lot of lawyers they look at the numbers as far as you know the medical bills, things that are easily countable. But it's the non-economic, the the intangibles. I mean, you think about your relationship. Think about your relationship with your close, the close people to you, your family, um, your mother, your father, your your kids. There's nothing to do with with uh, dollars and cents. It's invaluable. It's invaluable. So I, I, I commend you. I, I think that is great. I, I think that the analysis that you just made on the 30,000 packs of cigarettes, whatever it is, is absolutely brilliant. Oh, I love you. it. I'm stealing it. I'm, cool. I'm, I'm actually going to steal that, and I know our listeners will steal it, but it, thank you, Peter, for that. That's awesome. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you. Yeah, go ahead. Now, I was just going to say, oftentimes, I will start my opening statements with an anecdote. And I remember one in a brain, bad brain injury case. Because, you know, brain, brain injuries, especially a moderate, mild or moderate brain, traumatic brain injury, the person looks fine. They look perfect. It's the, the, the hidden illness, right? Uh, they don't, you, don't, you don't know if they have short-term memory loss by looking at them. And I, I remember, and I got a very, very good seven-figure verdict on this. The first thing I said when I stood up, I said two weeks ago, the, the plaintiff, Mr. So-and-so, I won't say his name, two weeks ago, he was sitting with his wife and small children and they were having a spaghetti dinner. In the middle of the meal, Mr. So-and-so stood up, grabbed the bowl of spaghetti and threw it as hard as he could against the wall. And that was commonplace. The bowl shattered, the children watched in terror as the spaghetti sauce flowed down the wall onto the floor. He didn't do that because he was angry. He did that because he has a brain injury and sometimes just can't control himself. And, and that just, the jury was just, you know, you could see with body language, they, they kind of leaned in and paid attention. And, and then I went on from there. And I said, well, let me tell you why. 
his brain will be damaged for the rest of his life. And then go into the story. And I know everyone does their openings differently. Everyone does their closings differently and stuff. Um, you really have to do, I think, what fits your own personality because juries see through fakeness. And Joe, having known you so long, I mean, you know, I hope everyone knows you walk on water to me as a lawyer. The things that you've accomplished in your cases is, is nothing short of amazing. And what I love probably most about you, if I may throw this back at you for a moment, is you are not what we call a two kingdom ethics person. You are a one kingdom ethics person. And what do I mean by that? That in your personal life, you behave exactly the same as you do in your professional life. And in your professional life, you act as exactly as you do in your personal life. And that to me is what I aspire to do because it, you're genuine. And genuineness and honesty is something that you often don't see, especially in lawyers that do the type of work that we do. I think it's gravely lacking and grossly lacking in our profession. And well, uh, yeah, when I yeah. people like you do what you do and the way you live your life, you're, you're a role model. For all of us. Well, th thank you very much, Peter. That's that's too kind. But you know, the thing that when when you, that we talk about is not many people have the privilege, the honor, to number one represent people, um, and to stand between them and you know a large insurance company. But secondly, to be able to be a translator of their case to a jury of their peers, which you know, think about that. This is the biggest thing in their life, and they are entrusting us to talk to the jury for them. And the only way I know how to do that is to be utterly transparent and tell not only the good sides about our case, but also the bad sides of our case. I mean, I'd rather level with the jury and tell them, hey, listen, this is, these are some things that, that are problematic in our case. And we're, I'm going to be the first one to tell you because my job is to honestly tell you what's going on. Your job is to evaluate everything and tell us who's on the right side of this, of this lawsuit. And, you know, what, we, what you talked about is the preparation and making sure that we only take cases that we, number one, ha, we want to fight for hard because there was an unjust law or it's un, unjust this is happening they could see right through us if we're being phony. I mean, absolutely see right through us. And I, I totally believe that. Well, I'll tell you one thing I say in almost every closing, you know, we give our closing as the plaintiff, then the defense goes and we get the last word. <clears throat> and I can't tell you how many times I've said in my rebuttal, if everything you just heard the defense lawyers say, if you really believe that's true, then I agree with them and you should not find in our favor. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I know because it's all, you know, it's always there. They're always got a red herring or something going on. It's just like, it's craziness. So listen, that's, that's a good way to, to, to finish up here, um, Peter, our closing arguments. And I just want to tell you, I, I, I really appreciate you spending the time during this, you know, really busy time for you, you know, with your firm scattered and everybody working remotely and, and all the busy things that you have going on. Um, but can you give us a, just a quick picture of where you see, um, the Grenier firm going. Um, and by the way, it's G-R-E-N-I-E-R, -E -E Peter Grenier out of um, uh, Maryland and DC and Virginia, but he's got cases all over the country. Um, if you're looking for him, just Google Peter Grenier, you're going to find him. Uh, but where else can people find you, Peter? Sure. It's uh, Grenier Law Group, 
law.group.com, G-R-E-N-I-E-R, lawgroup.com. And uh, we're happy we respond. We have a practice that if anyone contacts us about a case, we, we will respond within about 15 minutes, irrespective of the time of day or night. Um, and someone, uh, we, all, we all get, when people come in through the website, we all get um, a notification and, you know, sometimes multiple people from our office will respond, but we, we, we are always very responsive. And uh, where I see the firm going, um, frankly, each day is new and challenging. And I always tell people I have the best job on earth because when you can conform your reality to your ideals and you love what you do, I don't look at this as a job. I don't do this for the money. I, I've been very fortunate and God's blessed me in many ways. And I feel very fortunate. Um, I love to mentor and help the younger people in our firm and hopefully they, they learn from my mistakes and my successes, but uh, we'll just keep doing this uh, as long as my, hopefully my brain continues to function, hopefully at a level that's commensurate with the, uh, the cases that we're handling. And uh, um, we love, we always say in our office, we're on the side of the angels and we really mean it. Um, we just That's great. Oh, and so listen, um, folks, take a look at, at uh, Peter's website. It's unbelievable. It's got some great tools for you to take a look at as well as you can look at his career. Uh, but I, I tell you, I, I, it's been a privilege and honor to graduate with him uh, from law school, but also work with him on a number of cases. And so listen, Peter, I hope one day we'll, we'll have a uh, time to chat again uh, as our podcast gets bigger and we, there's going to be some great stories from uh, Peter down the road, I know. So thanks so much for joining us, my man. Absolutely. Thanks, Joe. And I look forward to seeing you three-dimensionally. <laughs> All right. Take care now. Thank you for listening to the opening statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com or telephone our office at 312-578-9501. Have a terrific day.